When Michelangelo was asked how he would go about carving an elephant, he said that first he would take a very large block of stone and then he would take away everything that wasn't the elephant. If we accept the possibility that there lies within each one of us the enlightened heart and mind, synonymous with the elephant, then our practice in meditation is very often presented as taking away or releasing everything that is not the enlightened heart and mind. Ajahn Chow, one of the great Thai forest teachers, even said that when you let go of everything that is possible to let go of, then what remains is true. And we see how much this thread of learning the art of being able to let go, it really runs through all of our meditation practice. Ajahn Chah went on to say that if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And then if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. We learn to let go, essentially in our practice, of everything that seems to mar or distort the essential clarity of our own heart and mind. And yet our practice and our journey is sometimes very often seen as this very long path of letting go. It seems that there can be a great deal that appears to imprison us or limit us. We learn to let go of everything moment to moment that appears to obstruct our capacity to see and live with freedom. I know, and I know many of you have spoken of this, it sometimes feels like we are working with a very big stone and a very small elephant. We can have some faith that yes, the elephant is somewhere in there, in that block of stone, that it can feel at times so very well hidden. So we sit, and, and people, particularly Westerners, and I, I think this is somewhat unique to Westerners in meditation practice, they talk and uh, they sit and uh, talk about working at their meditation as if our practice is a way of kind of showing up at the rock face on a daily basis and zealously chipping away at the hindrances and the obscurations with no apparent end in sight. I think there is a great deal of value and actually really quite a relief in taking this sense of me out of the journey of letting go. I, I, I think for many people, the moment they think of practice as work, then they also tend to assume this kind of exaggerated responsibility, you know, that it's up to me 
that if I'm to have success or progress, as however we define that in our practice, then it's going to be because going to be because of my zeal, my effort, my application. And the moment we bring that that sense of me, the meditator, into the practice, then our practice becomes yet another territory of success and failure, like so many other territories in our life when that sense of me is so strongly present. So we feel that there are moments when we're successful at letting go, and if the me is very strong in that process, then every moment of success we find ourselves somewhat prone to write a story about it the progress we're making, how well we're doing. And, of course, the moments of failure, the times when, however we define failure, the moments when we feel to be stuck, times of obsession, then they also, of course, belong to me, and we have our own story about that, our story of judgment and despair. It's very noticeable when, when the sense of I, when the sense of me is very central in our journey of letting go, then there, there is this tendency to continually focus upon imperfection. All the things that feel to be wrong, that feel to be amiss, that feel to be imperfect. And that's the place where meditation practice um, becomes this kind of antagonistic area where we're fighting the problems, or we're trying to solve these apparent problems that become almost enemies in our mind. Certainly, I would never argue with the power of letting go and the kind of release and liberation, and I think many of you have a taste of that in your practice, the kind of release that comes with being able to put down the burden of holding. But I feel like there is also this question which is really important in this practice. It's not about shouting at ourselves to let go or telling ourselves that we should let go. But how we let go, how we approach that letting go is really a reflection and an investigation in itself. It's so interesting that in this practice, in this tradition, our capacity to let go is presented as living side by side with our capacity to cultivate. So this path of cultivation and renunciation, these aspects, are often seen to be just two sides of the same coin or two parts of the same whole. The path of cultivation is almost a path of, you might say, kind of inviting the elephant to emerge from the block of stone. We cultivate in our heart and mind the wholesome, the wise, compassionate qualities of heart on a moment-to-moment level. We learn to attend to, to nurture, to care for all that is wise and compassionate and skillful within ourselves. It's, it's a journey of exploring really what is possible in each moment. 
in the, the kind of Buddhist literature and stories and mythology, there's presented this whole range of stories called the Jataka tales, which really speak about the journey of cultivation and whether we take these stories literally or symbolically really doesn't matter. But it speaks about the Buddha traveling through these different lifetimes, bringing to fulfillment the wise, the, the liberated qualities of heart and mind that are called the ten paramis, or the ten parameters. Sometimes this is translated as being the ten perfections or noble qualities of heart and mind. They are the qualities of generosity, of ethics, of renunciation, of wisdom, of effort, of patience, of truthfulness, of resolve, of equanimity, and loving kindness. These qualities are often seen or presented as being the embodiment of the enlightened heart. And the ripening or the cultivation of these qualities quite consciously is often seen to be the proximate cause of freedom. There is said that these, it is the cultivation of these qualities that in reality makes us enlightenment prone or receptive to transforming wisdom. It's a different way of looking at our life and looking at our experience. I think there, there is too often a tendency for people to look upon their, their personality and their life story as something that gets in the way of freedom, as, as something that gets in the way of, of completeness. That it's within our, our life story, our story of ourselves, our story of our life in the moment, that when we find ourselves struggling and fighting and judging and trying to subdue and trying to overcome, it's within the framework of what we call our life story, the story of me in that moment. We many people often feel that if, if they just had a different story, if they just had a different mind, if they just, just had a different body, you know, that they would just be a terrific meditator. There's this sense of it sometimes being an obstacle, and so we sometimes try to subdue or overcome. We often flounder. Yet it is to our story our story of ourselves, our story of the world, that we are always asked to return in meditation. It's our story that we live in. It's where we care, where we love, where we connect, and where we deepen in understanding is also within our story. It's just an obvious question that where else would we nurture and cultivate and bring to fruition the paramis, the nobility of heart and mind possible for all of us, except within our story? 
Our story, our personal story, it includes our past and our present, it includes our body, our mind, our heart. Our story also includes all of our relationships to each other. I think it's very clear that we don't cultivate the paramis in a vacuum. That we really cultivate the paramis in our moment-to-moment relationships and the ways that we engage with our world on a moment-to-moment level. It's apparent that our story, with all its joys and all its sorrows, is really only a finished manuscript or a closed book as long as it remains unexplored. With openness, with curiosity, with investigation, our story, the story of me, the story of my life, it's constantly being rewritten. It's being rewritten by new understandings. It's being rewritten by new experience. It's called a cultivation of a spirit of awakening. I really doubt that there's a single moment in any of our lives where we're not offered the invitation to cultivate the paramis. And I really, our our path is one of taking up that invitation rather than turning away from what is. The cultivation of generosity with all of the love and the open-heartedness that is part of generosity is the first of the paramis. Now, it's really obvious how much emphasis that the Buddha gave to the cultivation of generosity as as a means of living with an awake life and heart. I think the more that we explore generosity, the more that we see that it embraces so many of the other paramis, that part of of generosity is loving-kindness, it's patience, it's fearlessness, it's wisdom, there's renunciation in generosity. And it's a very direct way of learning how to let go, how to end suffering, how to end fear. And more importantly, maybe, generosity, the cultivation of generosity, is really a way of learning to end the division between self and other. I am always kind of awed by the power of generosity. I mean, when you reflect upon it, that 2,500 years of this, of this tradition and teaching is really founded upon generosity. When you sit here and walk around Gaia House like every other meditation center I teach in, it, it's like, here's the expression of generosity. It's what has given birth to where we are, to, to how this supports us. We also nurture in retreats our own generosity. The way that we learn to give ourselves to the moment. The way that we learn to give ourselves to, to understanding, to practice, to supporting one another. In a way, we also see that generosity kind of breathes life into all things because it liberates us from holding. And it's always interesting to see that when we cultivate generosity, which we're asked to do in many, many moments in the retreat, both inwardly and outwardly, what is it that we really let go of when we cultivate generosity? It's to me that what we really let go of is the fearful mind. 
So what we let go of is the fearful mind that clutches so tenaciously to me and to mine. We learn to let go of, in a way, self-preoccupation. We also learn to cultivating generosity, to somehow loosen that, that tightness and contractedness of heart. You know that, that very desperate feeling inwardly that we never have enough that there's not enough in our life of whatever we need, that there's not enough in the moment, that there's not enough in ourselves. That is what we are learning to let go of. But we also see that generosity in our life is not always easy because fear, or that kind of tenacious holding to me and mine and separation, in a way it's a kind of habit. We, we fear deprivation, we, we fear the unknown, we fear loss, and it's sometimes very profound, that fear. But it's also not at all a life sentence. All of us sense moments when fear grips us, and we see what it does to us, how it leads us to close down and to contract, to withdraw. And those are the moments, really, that are the invitation to generosity. In that moment where we learn to let go in those places of tightness, we really ask ourselves, are we letting go of anything that serves us well? Not because it's bad or wrong, but are we letting go of anything that serves us well? Or are we really letting go just of the habit of fear? The Buddha spoke about generosity in three ways. He said there is the generosity, the gift of offering whatever is needed to whoever needs it. That may be the gift of listening, the gift of respect, the gift of care, inwardly and outwardly, whenever there is suffering or pain. We see that we offer that generosity of giving what is needed wherever it is needed to ourselves. When there, when there are times or moments of, of anxiety or anger and dullness, when we say to ourselves, what does this need? That is the generosity of caring for that moment. The Buddha spoke about the generosity of fearlessness, the gift of fearlessness. And usually when he spoke about the gift of fearlessness, he really spoke about living in an ethical and loving way where no one needs to fear us. No one needs to fear us harming them or violating them or abusing them in any way. It's a gift of trust. He also spoke the, gen he said the, the generosity of understanding, the generosity that is really a direction of energy, a direction of effort towards understanding and ending suffering. We can see the countless opportunities, I think, most of us in our life to explore that quality of generosity. The moments when we find ourselves judgmental or holding, the moments when we give ourselves a hard time, the moments when we give somebody else a really hard time, even in our thoughts, to be really able to ask ourselves, what does it mean to cultivate generosity in those moments? 
we also see that it's cultivates joy. Most of us in our experience, I think it's very apparent to how much we suffer in the withholding mind, in the ungenerous mind. And we also sense that generosity is not about should, but that genuine generosity is really rooted in wisdom. It rests upon a real understanding that there's nothing we can truly hold on to. There's nothing we can truly hold on to. There's a wonderful Zen line, you know, when, when Zen monks say, you know, when, when my house burnt down, I gain an, gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. <laughs> you know, that sounds really terrific in theory. You know, but most of us, you know, if we put that into our own life, you know, when my, when my judgments burned down, you know, I could care unconditionally. Or when my fear was let go of, or my anger was let go of, I could open with tremendous receptivity. Then it becomes a more real question. You know, do we really long for that moonlit sky? Or do we actually sometimes quite like the house? And then sometimes that longing for the moonlit sky and the longing for the house almost coexisting. Sometimes generosity is confused with its near enemy, which is about self-sacrifice and a kind of martyrdom. That is not, you know, that is kind of withholding from oneself. And that's actually not genuine generosity. I think we can sense that when there's a very true, clear sense of generosity, really no one suffers, neither self nor other. The second parami is the parami of ethics. Now, most of us, when we hear that, we think, oh gosh, yes, and I know all that stuff, you know. It's like when we talk about the precepts at the beginning of a retreat, and we say, oh yeah, I know all that stuff. It, it is a one time Stephen Batchelor a few years ago, uh, you know, was teaching a retreat here on ethics and no one came. You know, so we say, oh no, we know all that stuff, you know. And we, we tend to regard ethics as this kind of, you know, set of rules or precepts. But I, I actually feel like genuine ethics is rooted in such deep wisdom. Um, it's not ethics, not some kind of moral corset of right and wrong and good and bad. In a way, the Buddha often spoke of loving kindness as ethics. Thoughts of loving kindness, words of loving kindness, acts of loving kindness, that this is truly what ethics is about. And it's so multidimensional, isn't it, ethics? It's because it's about relationship. You know, ethics is not about solitude. Ethics is about relationship and engagement. Our relationship to ourselves, to each other, to nature, to our planet. It's social, it's political, it's economic. Ethics really concerns itself with the well-being, the protection, the safety, and the trust that may be possible to nurture in each moment. It seems to me that there's two primary wisdom roots of ethics. One is about understanding interconnectedness and interdependence. That's the primary root of ethics. 
Understanding interdependence and interconnectedness means deeply understanding that whatever harm is done to another is also done to ourselves. Whatever harm is done to ourselves is also done to another. Whatever Whatever gift of kindness is offered to ourselves is also offered to another. But to offer kindness and care to another is also to benefit ourselves. The other wisdom root of ethics is about understanding cause and effect. And I think for most of us on different levels, it's, it's pretty obvious that this, this notion of being a separate and isolated individual, unaffected and uninformed by the world around us, is pretty much an illusion. I, I mean, that's pretty evident. We see how in every moment of our life, you know, we are informed and impacted by the thoughts and words and choices and acts of countless beings around us. Just as we impact upon the world with every thought and word and act that we do or leave undone. And ethics is really understanding that everything has an effect. And so therefore we're asked really essentially to take care of the cause. And we also are a cause. You know, we're not somehow standing outside of this cause-effect relationship. But I think it's so subtle because it's not just about actions we're doing. It's really about the quality of our consciousness. As I mentioned the other evening, you know, that encouragement to whatever you do, be aware of the state of your mind. To me, that that's such a powerful koan for living. Whatever we do, be aware of the state of our mind, because everything springs from that. All our thoughts, all our actions, all our choices, all our words, all spring from the state of the mind. And to care for the state of our mind, in an ethical sense, I think is to care for the world. Ethics has its roots in compassion. The compassion that is concerned with bringing suffering to an end. And it affects our meditation. You know, Upandita is one of the, you know, kind of, he's one of the fierce uh, teachers in the Mahasi Sayada tradition. He, he once said, you know, that you know, how can you do meditation without ethics? He says, because all you do is create the conditions for endless unpleasant mind states to arise. I think that's, you know, it's so true. Remorse, guilt, blame, judgment seem to follow in the wake of every thought and word and action that in any way harms ourselves and others. And ethics is really about cultivating quality of blamelessness. Sometimes when the Buddha spoke about liberation, he spoke about freedom, he, he spoke about learning to live in a way that leaves no residues in the mind. That's interesting. To be able to meet with someone, speak with someone, to be able to act, interact, engage, and, and to be there with such kind of quality of compassion and care that when you leave that engagement, you leave that interaction, 
There is no residue left in the mind of something unsaid or undone or something we would prefer not to have said or done. It's quite a powerful kind of life practice. You know, how do we live in a way that leaves no residues, leaves no traces in the mind? What do we let go of in the cultivation of ethics? Very often all that we're really letting go of is greed and anger and delusion. Because what we see is that there is really no act of harm, inwardly or outwardly, that lives outside the territory of greed, anger and delusion. So in that sense, we're learning to let go really as an act of compassion, as an act of wisdom for ourselves. Renunciation is the third of the paramis. It's a strand that certainly runs through all of the others. It's probably apparent or become apparent during this retreat. At the place Places we suffer most in our life are the places we cling to most strongly. I guess that's pretty obvious to everybody. Um, that we don't actually suffer outside of those places of clinging. You know, whether it's to views and opinions or positions or preferences or likes and dislikes and aversions. The places where we suffer are the places we cling to most strongly. Because that's where we see our consciousness being governed. Whatever we cling, our consciousness is governed by whatever we cling to. And we see we can often be really imprisoned by clinging. And underneath or surrounding in some way all holding, there's craving and there's aversion. I think when we see that clinging and suffering go hand in hand in our life, then we also see renunciation in kind of a different way. That it's really not about deprivation, it's not about letting go of this. It's really about the renunciation of pain and struggle. It's really not hard to understand letting go. You know, people say, oh, you know, how do you do it? You know, what does it really mean? If you went outside after the talk and you picked up a sharp pe pebble from the driveway and just walked around with it in a clenched fist for the next half hour, you get a taste of what holding is. If you then open your hand and you feel the relief of that, that's actually letting go. Experientially, we can sense how often we can go around holding those sharp pebbles. And letting go, the relief of letting go is really not a fine theory. I think we can also see this in, a, in our experience and our practice all the time. You know, I mean, when you have like one of those really fierce bouts of obsession, you know, and clinging and dwelling, you know, where it's really, you know, a really decent 
bout of obsession, right? It's like, it's like, when do you come out of it? You know, when you come out of it, you know, what is your sense of it? I mean, was it fun? You know, was it, you know, refreshing, invigorating, renewing? Well, yeah, so you look back and you say, boy, that was really suffering. That was really miserable. So it's actually kind of learning to bring that insight much closer to the times where we are in those real fear bouts. What is needed? How do we open our hand in that moment? Sometimes there's a training in letting go. I, I sometimes think there's a training in letting go, that one of the steps in learning how to let go is actually the cultivation of restraint. Now, this is not a popular philosophy in our culture, restraint. I appreciate that. You know, it's restraint, you're like, who did that? You know, throw yourself into it, you know, go for it, you know, put everything into it. But like restraint to me is more like a kind of pregnant pause of mindfulness. It really allows us to see what goes on. And restraint is a kind of act of wisdom that we bring into some of the most habitual areas of our life. You know, like, like it's like you go in the dining room at lunchtime and you have lunch and you really enjoy it and you've really had enough. And then there's this little voice that says, oh, that was really good. You know, I really like a little more. So suddenly you find yourself walking with your plate and this very full stomach up to the table and having another plate. And it, it's like the, the kind of habit of that can be so powerful. It, we don't actually even see that the holding and the craving. And we think in that moment is actually just to sit with the empty plate for a few moments. You know? Maybe it's enough. Sometimes it's those places, you know, where that are really charged. You know, some of our most um, close relationships are often relationships where restraint is abandoned, you know, we, we, we find a lot of habit creeps in. And, you know, sometimes then that is, is very verbal, you know, we, we find ourselves very prone to, you know, our mouths open and it's like there's this hotline to every tendency of our life, you know, that gets expressed in words. And, you know, we might find ourselves very impulsively judging or berating or scolding and sometimes we stay in that moment and say, okay, let me just see what happens if the words aren't spoken. It's not suppression, it's interest. You know, suppression is much more the unwillingness to see. Restraint is more the interest, the curiosity of seeing really what unfolds when we don't just jump into the habitual and the familiar. The fourth of the paramis is the parami of wisdom. The wisdom in the path and the fruition of the path. I think wisdom sometimes seems very vague, but you know, classically in this tradition, wisdom has a lot of definitions. It's about understanding suffering and its cause moment to moment. It's a practice. Wisdom is a practice of ending suffering and the ways to end suffering. Wisdom is about understanding impermanence and change and all its implications in our life. Wisdom is about somehow seeing the illusory nature of this sense of self and separation. It's about seeing how our world is created moment to moment. And wisdom doesn't just come as magical thinking. Wisdom is really born of investigation. 
that sometimes investigation is said to be the most important factor of awakening. The willingness to probe beneath the surface of things, to understand what is true. You know, it also involves wise effort and intention and consciousness and mindfulness. It's really seeking for the elephant in each moment. And it takes a lot of energy. It's the fifth of the parami. There's a, a Tibetan saying that says, you know, we should cultivate this practice or walk this path as if we have a thousand lifetimes in which to do it and yet not waste one single precious moment. Energy just doesn't dissipate. Energy for most of us is consumed in the fires of obsession and anxiety. You know, the endless thinking and wandering and planning and rehearsing actually exhausts us. It just exhausts us. You know, you think about a retreat realistically, you know, we spend all day just sitting around. Occasionally, we have a little toddle back and forth. It's hardly any marathons, is it? In the end of the day, we're so tired, you know, you're going to keep our eyes open and crawling into bed, you know. What is exhausting us? I mean, it's also true to see that as people's practice deepens and gets clearer, how much energy is actually available to them. You know, how sleep, the need for sleep lessens. There's much more alertness, much more presence. And it's not because they're doing some magical things, because they're actually obsessing less. It's the biggest consumer of energy. It says, line I came across. It says, we're tired by mental conflict. We're antagonistic to too many things in our environment. Too much of the time we are a house divided against itself. And this inner conflict is an exhausting and sometimes frightening experience. Energy is very much tempered by calmness, by patience. The next of the panic. We can so zealously pursue our dreams of enlightenment and clarity and compassion and yet really neglect to learn the art of resting in the moment. Patience is really about knowing what it means to smile at our meditation cushion when we come in the hall. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, whether it's exhilarating or tiring, you know, whether we're getting somewhere or feeling we're not getting somewhere. Patience is about being able to smile at our cushion. Knowing that the worthiness is simply being able to show up, to turn up for our life, whatever unfolds in that moment. We can be such impatient people. You know, we want everything immediately. We want results, we want evidence, we want proof, we're measuring. It's like we want some sort of microwave enlightenment. And we can be so busy and and demanding that the patience that supports this whole practice just gets undermined. 
Patience is really that art of learning to be at, at ease with all things. Nothing has to end, nothing has to go away, nothing has to be to start, but to learn how to rest in the stillness of our own heart and mind. That's patience. If we are really identified with the contents of our heart and mind, that's where patience is lost. Because we want something to go away, we have want to make it different, we demand something else starts. Patience is really learning to rest in the stillness of our own heart and mind. And it's not just a few people who have a still heart and mind. Everybody can have stillness of heart and mind. Knowing that there is just this moment to care for. There's something in there about learning to undo that hook of the next moment. You know, I, I know sometimes, you know, it's said that, you know, if you really want to practice this path of patience, you have to surrender hope. And people hear that and they say, oh, no way, that's terribly fatalistic and depressing. But it's not about surrendering wise intention. I mean, this whole practice is about wise intention. You know, when we do loving kindness practice, it's the intention of wishing well for all beings. When we sit, we're practicing for liberation. Intention is so important. And yet there's some way in which this other hook can come in that's always about the next moment. And that's when we get impatient. The next moment when something goes away or something is better, you know, the better moment, the more enlightened moment, that's where we kind of lose patience. Truthfulness is the seventh of the paramis. And I, I think that... This really is pointing to the way in which meditation is actually, most of us, it's a path of learning to be honest with ourselves. Learning to be truthful with the moment. Learning to see the truth of the moment. To see anger as anger and greed as greed and dullness as dullness and calmness as calmness. It's the mindfulness of knowing the moment as it is. And this isn't always comfortable, you know, because our minds are really sneaky creatures sometimes. You know, pity can um, disguise itself as compassion. You know, fear can disguise itself as humility. Spaciness can certainly disguise itself as awareness. You know, when we say, oh, yes, I'm just sitting here, I'm really aware. Yeah, let me just really space that. You know, it's, it's like honesty, it's kind of like knowing the difference. Really knowing the difference. It's not kind of pretending we're really aware. We're actually, we're just going to space that. It's, it's walking away from things, you know, can disguise itself as renunciation. We're saying, oh, I'm letting go of something. But actually, we're just walking away from something we don't want to be with. And that's part of the honesty, of the, the kind of wise honesty of the past. Perseverance is important. It's kind of knowing where we're going. It doesn't deny doubt. Perseverance embraces doubt, but it doesn't consent to allowing doubt to dictate our consciousness. I think it really is important in this practice to have a, a kind of sense of knowing what we're leaving behind. You know, we are leaving things behind when we practice. 
knowing where the intention is really to go. It's not that we're going somewhere else, but sensing the direction of our practice, because that's actually where we have faith. It's, it's, it's where we, we learn to really make our home. What really saves perseverance from striving is the ninth paramount of loving-kindness. And I think the fastest way to depth in practice is through loving-kindness, because it really is what rescues us from blame and from judgment and from harshness. And there's never too much. I mean, we can have really too little loving-kindness. We never have too much loving-kindness. And, and many people see the way in practice, the way the patterns of harshness and intolerance and, and, and heavy-handedness and judgment are transferred directly from their lives into their practice. And it debilitates us. And more and more we come to see that to find unconditional warmth, to find unconditional friendliness and loving kindness in the moment is really to change the moment. And sometimes it's to change patterns of a lifetime. Loving kindness is strengthened by the tenth parami of equanimity. It's obvious how difficult it is to find compassion and loving kindness in a world which is really endlessly split into camps of enemies and friends, of allies and opponents. Equanimity is not indifference or an absence of care, but it's the equanimity of being willing to be equally near all things, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the lovely and the unlovely. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a kind of little line, a few lines I came across that describe this kind of depth of equanimity. It says, even if someone regards you as an enemy, cherish them especially, like a mother does her child who is stricken by sickness. If an enemy disparages you, Place them as you would your spiritual teacher with respect on the crown of your head. That's equanimity. The most difficult, the most offensive, the most hard. To place them on the crown of our head with respect as we would our teacher. In the parami, in the Buddhist stories of developing the paramis, they often refer to as the way of cultivating bodhicitta, or cultivating the heart of compassion that liberates all beings. And we see that the paramis are not just a meditation practice, they are really a life practice. That they're not just about liberating our heart, they are really about liberating our life. Have just a couple of moments, kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.